Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Have you ever met an extremely optimistic uh, person to the extreme? A dad had a son like that. He was so optimistic that it bothered him. He felt like the boy was setting himself up for extreme disappointment later on in life. So he decided that he was going to break the boy of that optimism right here and now. Of course, it was Christmas time. So he took a room and filled it up with horse manure. And he told his son that he had a great gift for him. And on Christmas morning, he took him to the room and opened the door. And the boy shouted out with glee, dove into the horse manure and began digging around. The shocked father said, son, what are you doing? The boy replied, beaming, with all this horse manure, there must be a pony in here somewhere. I'm not sure how gift giving became a part of our Christmases. Uh, Most everyone I read said that Christmas giving, or excuse me, that gift giving predated Jesus and that we in the church sort of enveloped the celebration of the birth of Jesus. We enveloped this idea of exchanging gifts into the, into the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And, you know, I imagine that maybe that's not the whole truth, but I think it probably embodies some of what is true. But be that as it may, Christmas, Christmas really is about giving. And it's about giving the greatest gift of all. We're talking about the fact that God gave us his son. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This holiday, I thought it'd be good for us to stop our study of the book of Mark for just a bit and maybe uh, and focus some on Christmas. And so I would like to, through the month of December, look at the gifts that God has given with to us along with Jesus, some of the gifts that he's given to us at Christmas. And today we want to talk about joy. That's probably no surprise, right? God gave us joy, the gift of joy. And he gave us that in part in the advent of the birth of Jesus. I think if there's a single word that captures, you know, the essence of Christmas, I think it might be the little word joy. We have lots of carols that seem to capture that. We sang some of them this morning. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Oh, come all you faithful, joyful, and triumphant. Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. One more. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. So you get the picture. Joy is really associated with our Christmas celebration, with our celebration of the birth of Jesus. What exactly is joy? I, t- I got to be honest, I feel angst every time I have to define joy for us because it's such an intangible thing. How do you define what joy is? And especially because we might have various understandings of what joy is, but I think it's important to try. So what is joy? Well, first of all, I don't think it's an emotion. I don't think it's an emotion. Joy evokes happiness, which I believe is an emotion, and they're often tied together. I think joy really should should kind of bring out happiness in us most of the time. Um, 
We would all agree that happiness is an emotion that, that comes from our circumstances, but joy is something different. Joy is something that doesn't come from our circumstances. And in fact, I think it's something that is apart from our circumstances. And so I, I wrote a definition of joy. This is Jimmy's definition. Other people have said things similar to this. It's in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen behind me. But, uh, but here it is. Joy is an abiding assurance that God loves me and a sustaining confidence that everything, everything will ultimately be okay. And a steadfast determination that because God loves me and because everything will be okay, I am going to reject gloom and instead I am going to praise God in every circumstance of my life. That's how I'm defining joy. And unfortunately, I can't go to the Bible and quote you book and verse and say, this is where you'll find this definition. I can't even send you to any Christian leader who has the the end-all definition to joy. But I think that's a good biblical definition of joy. So allow me to read it yet again. Joy is an abiding assurance that God loves me. And it's a sustaining confidence that no matter what, everything will ultimately be okay. We'll end up good. We'll have a good ending. And a steadfast determination to reject gloom and instead praise God in every circumstance of my life. Whenever I think of joy, I think of Horatio Stafford's, and I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, but I I think of his song, It Is Well With My Soul, because I think that is a definition of, uh, of another definition, a smaller definition of joy. And for those of you that may not know the song, It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio Stafford sent his wife and his three daughters on ahead of him to England. This was back when there weren't airplanes, there weren't a ship. And the ship went down halfway across the Atlantic and his three daughters died. His wife was the only one that was spared. And when he crossed back across the Atlantic to meet his wife in England, the captain said, hey, this is where your daughters died. This is where the ship went down. And he went out and supposedly he wrote down the word to the, to the song, it is well with my soul. No matter when, when things are just going horrible in your life, it is well, but that is the essence of what joy is. So based on this definition of joy that I just gave you, you can have sorrow, and you can have pain, and you can have suffering, but you can still be experiencing joy. The confidence that God loves me, the, the assurance everything's going to be okay in the end, and the determination to praise God in the midst of anything. As I grieved and still grieve Shep's death, I've always had joy. I had an abiding assurance that God loved me and Anne and and the rest of my children and you all and that he was with us and that it ultimately would be okay. And I had a steadfast determination to praise God and to trust him in my grief. People often, and I know grief is maybe slightly different than, than suffering, but maybe not. People often treat grief and joy like they're one continuous line. In other words, I'm in grief today, but I'm going to be in joy tomorrow. 
Now, I want to say that I think that might be true about happiness and grief, right? I can be in grief today and, and maybe not in happiness at the very same moment because happiness is an emotion that comes about because of our circumstances. So I, I, can, I can be, I'm not going to be grieving or hurting or sorrowful and happy at the same time. However, I don't believe that joy and and grief or sorrow are one continuous line. I've, I've told you this before, I'm sure. But I, I feel confident that joy and grief or sorrow or hurt or pain or whatever, they're parallel lines in our life. So that you can be experiencing joy and pain at the very same moment or joy and sorrow at the very same moment. You can say no matter how, how hard it is for you in the moment, you can still say it is well with my soul. You can still say, hey, I know God loves me. I know it's going to be good in the end, and I am going to praise him. So how do I get joy? How do I live in joy? So here's two biblical thoughts, I believe, and this is how I believe you and I get joy. First of all, we get joy by God giving us joy. I mean, God gives us what we need for joy, God enables joy in us. Psalm 16, 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. Now listen, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Galatians 5, says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So uh, joy is described as, as knowing God and walking with God. That, that's where joy comes from. It comes from knowing God and walking with God. So when you get to know God, here's what you get to know about God, that he loves you, that he always loves you. He's never going to stop loving you. And that he's promised you that no matter what you're going through, it's going to be okay in the end. All right? And I don't necessarily mean in the end as in now or this moment or, or whatever. I mean, in the end, when God makes all things right, it, it will be good in the end and that you can praise him in the middle of all of that. So that's, what, that's, that's why joy is considered the fruit of the spirit. It's a result of knowing and walking with God. Now, a lot of people don't like the word synergist or synergism when they speak about our relationship with God. When, the, when they call you a synergist, uh, it's often used pejoratively in a negative way. Synergism is the idea that, that two are cooperating together for something. I prefer the thought, when I think of my relationship with God and synergy, I prefer the thought that God does everything in our life, okay, and, uh, but yet at the same time, he makes me responsible to respond to his work in my life. In other words, he makes me response-able. Now, some folks think that if, if I am response-able, that somehow takes away from God's glory or God's, you know, the shining on God, but I, I don't think it does at, at all. Joy is his enablement. It comes to us by walking with him. He gives it to us. But at the same time, this brings me to my second, this brings me to my second biblical thought on, on where we get joy. We get joy by choosing joy. 
This is where the synergism comes in. This is where my responsibility comes in. This is where I, joy is not just like God zaps you with joy. God enables joy. He gifts you joy. He gives you joy. But I've got to choose to walk in it. That's my responsibility. And that's the biblical tension that we find throughout scripture on so many issues. God enables me to walk in joy, but at the same time, I've got to walk in joy. I've got to choose it. So uh, that's the two wings of truth that we mentioned. That's the biblical tension that we've talked about. To me, this is so much of how God operates in the world. He calls for our responsible, response-able responses to his work. He provides Jesus as an atonement for our sins, and he rescues us from death. He alone can save us from death. But at the same time, he expects our response of faith before he's going to act to save. Salvation is totally his, but he expects our response of faith to him before he acts. James writes his readers, he tells them, consider it all joy when you undergo trials. My brothers and sisters, you will face all kinds of trials, he says. I'm quoting now from James chapter 1, verse 2. When you do, think of it as pure joy. Your faith will be tested, and you know that when this happens, it will produce in you the strength to continue. When you have a trial or a struggle or a suffering, choose to think of joy. Choose the abiding assurance that in the midst of your pain, God loves you. You should stop loving you. This, that, that pain isn't an indicator that God doesn't love you. And at the same time, have a sustained confidence that in the end, it'll be okay, all right? And then have that steadfast determination to choose to praise the Lord. I brought a friend of mine this morning just to help you remember. <laughs> He's going to sit up there the whole time. Uh, he sits in my office, and he sits in my office to remind me not to be an Eeyore. He sits in my office to remind me to choose joy. Now, I don't, I don't do this well. Choosing joy is like choosing love. It's not something done once and forgotten. Choosing joy has to become a way of life. I mean, it has to become an everyday thing in your life where you're choosing it time and time again. I have to choose to reject gloom that my circumstances tug at in my heart. You know, there's a lot of circumstances that tug at gloom and doom in our hearts, and, and they, they tug at us wanting to be just negative, right? I've got to choose against that. Why? Because joy knows the bigger picture, right? Joy's got the bigger picture, and so joy can say, I'm not going to be him. I'm not going to respond the way he always does uh, uh, in the books and, and, of course, in the, in the cartoons and shows, right? I will, I will choose joy. So this morning, I think that Christmas, the story of the birth of Jesus, helps us choose joy. So I'm going to read part of the story, and I'm going to give you four ways that I think joy is, is, is given to us, is nurtured, is bolstered and encouraged in our life through the Christmas story. And, and Ronnie, Ronnie said much of what I'm going to say from here to the end, all right? So you're just going to get a repeat of Ronnie's, of Ronnie's song, if you would, in a way. So uh, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, which is very, very familiar territory. Uh, the shepherds are in the field. 
and uh, the angels appeared to them. So in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields, keeping watch at night over their flock. And then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, uh, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. One moment you're tending sheep, and the next moment you're terrified by uh, an angel army. But the angels come with this reassuring news. They say, we have good news of great joy. And that good news of great joy is verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So let me show you how that one verse alone, I think, can stir up or can help bolster the joy that you and I must choose. So here's, here we go. The, first, the verse nurtures our joy because it assures us that God knows the future. So notice it says, born this day in the city of David. Well, that's a, the city of David was David's city. It wasn't Jerusalem, it was Bethlehem because that's where David grew up. Today, Bethlehem is in the Arab-controlled part or under Palestinian control. Uh, modern Bethlehem is bustling with people. It, uh, it's the town or city now that holds the oldest church in, uh, in Israel, the Church of the Holy Nativity. It was built supposedly on the side of the stable in 325 um, B.C., but I don't know that we would know that for sure. Bethlehem is called the city of David because that's where he grew up. His father and his brothers were from that area. When he shepherded so often, he most likely was in the same fields that, that these shepherds were in that night when the angels appeared to them. But the neat thing about this is that 700 years prior to this, God had told us through the prophet Micah that it was the town of Bethlehem from where the king would be, would be born, where he would come from. And so in Micah 5, 2, let me just read it. It says, Bethlehem of Fratha, Fratha you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be the ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. You know, notice that it says, though you're the smallest of the clans in Judah. Back 700 years ago, or prior to this time when Jesus was born, Bethlehem was probably no more than just a few families that had started a little town together. It was a little village. And God says, out of you is going to come this great king. And all of Israel knew it. All of Israel know it, and we knew it. We know that because when the Magi came looking for Jesus, you remember they, Herod asked the wise men, where is the Messiah to be born? And they said, well, he's to be born in Bethlehem. Everyone, everyone knew that. And so what that tells us in the, at the birth of Jesus is that God, God knew what he was planning and God knew the future. Now, how does this bolster our joy? How does this, if you would, nurture our joy? It nurtures our joy because it tells us that, that God is fully aware of all that's going to happen. God knows the future. 
I don't believe God knows the future because he causes the future. I believe God knows the future because he's omniscient. And he knew that Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And he knew that he would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. And this nurtures our joy because it tells us this. God knows our future. And God knowing our future tells us it is going to be okay. I don't care what you're suffering. I don't care what you're going through. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to say that it's going to be okay in the moment. People try to tell us that if we just, I've talked about this quite a bit lately, but if you just have enough faith, it can be okay in the moment. That is not true. Sometimes you can have all the faith in the world and it's not going to be okay in the moment. But God promises you it will be ultimately okay. I've got this. And the reason why this story of Jesus' birth, where 700 years before God says, this is what I'm going to do, when God says, this is what I'm going to do in the future, you can know he knows it. And you can know he's right because he was right back when Jesus was born. You know, uh, in in the book of Revelation, it says this. God says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne and it said, look, God now makes his home with the people. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death and there'll be no more sadness and there'll be no more crying and there'll be no more pain. Things no longer the way, things will no longer be the way they used to be. He who is sitting on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. You can trust these words. They are true. So here's how the Christmas story nurtures our joy. It tells us when God says to you, it's going to be okay, he means it, and you can trust him. Number two, this verse encourages our joy because it assures us that God actually lived among us. So this verse says, the angel said, unto you is born this day. I mean, that day someone was born into the world. And that someone who was born into the world was none other than God himself, was none other than God becoming one of us. The Bible clearly teaches that God conceived Jesus in Mary nine months earlier and that because of that, he would be known as the Son of God. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about the lower story and the upper story. The lower story, he said, is the truths, the truths or the facts of a story, the reality of a story. The upper story, he called, he said, were often stories where they're seeking to teach a moral truth, but the facts of the story aren't really true, like Aesop's fables and myths and that sort of thing. A lot of people want to make the, the birth of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus in particular, an upper story thing. They want to suggest that it really didn't happen, it's just there to teach a, a moral truth. But Luke tells us that this is no upper story. This is a lower story. God was born as one of us into our world. And the Christian faith has always affirmed this from the very beginning. Our earliest creeds say that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This is one truth that all believers seem to, or, or early Christians all believed and held to from the very beginning. Hey, by the way, but after that, his birth was absolutely normal. In other words, there was, Jesus' birth was absolutely human, 
after his divine conception by God, he was born the natural way. Now, it was an unusual birth, right? Born in a stable, but people have been born in taxis, and they've been born on bridges, and people have been born in unusual ways. Jesus' birth was maybe unusual, but it was perfectly, it was human. It was, it was, it was just like all of our births, other than he was conceived by God. So here, here is my point. My point is this nurtures, bolsters our joy because we know that God became one of us. Let me go back to John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave his son. This verse tells us that he gave his son and his son came into the world. And why did he come into the world? Because he loved us, right? So no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're suffering, never, ever, ever forget God loves you. God's not, listen, the pain and suffering in your life, and, and I know we wanna, I've been talking about it a lot, we, we wanna answer that question. We wanna answer the critics. Why would a loving God allow us to suffer? And the truth is, you know, there's a lot of plausible, good answers, I think, to that or, or answers that would speak truth, but let's just face it, suffering is hard. And what happens when you suffer, in fact, I prayed for someone this morning. I prayed for someone this morning who has a lot of suffering. And, and I prayed that when, when Satan whispers in their ear, God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. This pain that you're going through, God, God just doesn't care for you. I prayed that her faith would sustain her. I prayed that her faith would extinguish those darts of, of doubt that the enemy would sow in her, in her heart. John speaks of it this way. In the beginning, he wrote, in the beginning was the word, this is the apostle, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was God in the beginning. In the word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God became human in the truest and literalest of sense, senses because he loves us, because he cares for you. And I've said this to you before, I, you know, why God allows suffering, I mean, that's, that's one of those questions that I'm sure he'll talk to us about it one day. But in the meantime, this is what we can say, he became one of us and entered into our suffered, suffering and suffered with us. It wasn't like God sits way off yonder watching us suffer. No, God entered our suffering because he loves us. Paul would say to the Colossians, he would say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For God was pleased for all his fullness to dwell in him. And the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus and Jesus suffered greatly. Suffered greatly. Why? Because he loved us. Unto you this day is born. It's not a legend. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. God became one of us. And this encourages our faith because God loved us to become one of us. He didn't have to do any of that. He did that because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Number three, this verse bolsters our joy because it assures us that Jesus has saved us. This is the climax, really, of the verse. Today is born to you a Savior uh, who is Messiah, 
uh, the Lord. I, I think it's the climax of the verse. A Savior's been born to, for us. Jesus came to save us. When Mary was uh, pregnant with Joseph, we, we know the story well. Oh, excuse me, Mary was pregnant with Joseph. When Mary was pregnant with Jesus, Joseph, he was like, wow, she's been unfaithful to me. She's, she's done what she shouldn't. And he could have had her put to death, but he loved her, it says, and he was going to divorce her privately, silently, so that she would not be executed for her immorality. And while he's waiting, of course, God appears to him and uh, he says to him, don't be afraid to take Mary. Jesus, the son, that the child that's in her, it's from me. It's not from another man, it's from me. Don't be afraid to take her. And then we read this, she will give birth, this is Gabriel speaking to Joseph, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus Yeshua saves because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is going to save us, everyone. Jesus is going to save us from our sin. What is the wage of our sin? We all know it well, right? It's death. The wages of sin is death. The penalty of our sin is death. And the answer is Jesus came to save us from our death. Death entered into the world through Adam. Because of Adam, we all die. But we also all die because of our own sin. So Jesus came to rescue us from our death. I recently had a medical procedure where they had to put me to sleep. And um, so, you know, I'm laying there and they're about to give me the drugs to put me to sleep. But you know, I wasn't afraid at all. You know why? Because I knew they were going to wake me up afterwards. At least I really hoped they would. And um, I was pretty confident they would. Um, so I wasn't afraid. You know, we don't need to be afraid of death because God's going to wake us up from death. God is going to resurrect us back to life. Death for us will not be permanent. Death for us is only a temporary thing. And then God's going to raise us. Jesus is going to save us. Jesus is going to save us. And, and, and so here's, here's why God can say to you, it's going to be okay, even if your life ends in the sorrow that you're in. Why, why do our martyrs, those who are martyred for Christ, how, how is it that they can stand there and, and know that their life is going to end in the next minute? How can they stand there and, and not flinch? And, and, you know, and praise God in the moment? How can they do that? Because they're absolutely confident of this, that Jesus is going to rescue them and it's going to be okay. And that rescue, everyone, we all know it, that rescue doesn't necessarily happen in the moment. I was looking for it this morning because of our Sunday school class. I always get confused. I think it's, it's Psalm 73. But in Psalm 73, the psalmist talks about how he looked at the, the wicked people and he almost stumbled, he said, because I see wicked people prospering everywhere and I see godly people not prospering and suffering and dying. And he said, I almost, my foot almost slipped until I realized there's coming a day of judgment. And in the day of judgment, it's not just that wicked folks will be recompensed for wickedness. It is God's people by faith will be rewarded with eternal life forever, an eternal embodied life forever. And so it's going to be okay. Whatever you're going through, whatever happens to you, it's going to be okay. And one more thought before we leave this, and, 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 and Ronnie pointed to it, 
But this message came to the shepherds and they were, you know, they were kind of considered low in that, at least this is what we're told, they were considered low in that culture because lots of times they were uneducated, um, they were often poor, they uh, traveled and so they were blamed for a lot of thie- thievery, right? So they were traveling through people, somebody got stolen, some got stolen, they would blame the shepherds. So they were really considered outcasts. It's to the outcasts that Jesus said, to you is born a savior. And I think the reason for that is so that God would say to all of us, it's for you, it's for every one of you, for me. It doesn't matter who we are, Jesus was born for us to rescue us from the wages of our sin. I have great news, the angel said to them, for you there is born a savior. Now how does this Christmas thought strengthen my joy? Well, it strengthens my joy because again, what is joy? It's, it's this confidence that God loves me. It's this assurance that it's gonna be okay, right? It's gonna be okay. Why? Because Jesus is our savior, And so whatever the circumstance, I can praise God in the middle of it. I I, I know he loves me. I know he cares for me. I know he's going to rescue me so I can praise him. And that brings me to the last one. And uh, so the the last thought of this verse that I think galvanizes our joy or helps us with our joy is the fact that it says, because it assures us Jesus is Lord. Last part of the verse. Today in the city of David, a Savior is born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Jesus was the promised one. Jesus was the king. Jesus is Lord. Why would the sovereignty of Jesus and the power of Jesus to rule, why would that strengthen our joy? Because he can keep his promises. Nobody's going to thwart his promises. I think it's uh, Jesus says, I have you in my hand. My, you, my father has me. and Nobody can take you out of my hand, Right? Nobody can take you out of his hand because he, he has us. He is strong to keep his promises. And so he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In Daniel chapter seven, verse 14, there's a picture of when Jesus, I think there's a picture of when Jesus returns to heaven after his um, work on earth was done. And he approaches the eternal God He's led right up to him. And this is what it says in verse 14. And he was given authority, glory, and a kingdom. People of all nations, no matter what language they spoke, worshiped him. His authority was, will last forever. It will not pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The same Jesus born that Christmas morning is the same Jesus to whom we will rise. And it is the same Jesus who will rescue us. And it is the same Jesus that is worthy of our praise today. God has given us what we need for joy to course through our veins. One more time, joy is an abiding assurance that God loves me, a sustaining confidence that everything will be okay in this last part, and a steadfast determination to reject gloom and instead praise God in every circumstance of my life. Christmas itself is one of God's means of giving us joy, but then you must choose it. So I've got a final, if you would, applicational challenge. It's not from me, it's from John Ortberg. But here's what John Ortberg says, and and really, I, I want you and me to do this, okay? I want you and me to do this. Here's what John says. Find joy mentors, 
people who are a little further down this joy road than we are. Find people who seem to be joyful persons and get as close to them as you can. Observe them. Ask them questions. Find out how they got to the place of choosing to face life with joy. I'm not talking about someone who just has a great personality. I'm talking about joy mentors who through life's ups and downs have developed a deep, with Christ, settled assurance about God and his goodness, believing that ultimately everything will be all right and repeatedly demonstrating a willingness to praise God in all things. Hey man, when you find this guy, stay away from him. Don't let him influence you, right? I wish I had a Tigger. But it's not just, it's not just the Tigger. We just need to find that person who's got that, that absolute sense of assurance in their life that no matter what happens to them, God loves them. God cares for them that he's got you, that it's going to be all right. And even if all of your children are killed in a boat accident, it can, you can still say, praise God, it is well with my soul because God's got this. God's got this and it's going to be okay. The words of the angel to the shepherds were, fear not, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. And what is the source of that joy? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.